Question number three. What do I believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? The question of defining Jesus is at the heart of every faith debate. If you want to know what somebody else thinks really about faith issues, ask them what they believe about Jesus. Was he just a nice man? Was he just a wise teacher? Was he just a prophet? Was he just a politician? What is the truth about Jesus? I'm Jeff Eckert. I'm Jason Brewer. And this is The Thought Factory. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, cultivating students through biblical discipleship and spiritual disciplines using theology, community, and technology. Learn more at neverthesame.org. What do I believe about Jesus? This is the question we're talking about today, and we're talking about it as we consider the context of our work with students in student ministry as volunteers, youth pastors, whoever we might be out there, adults, parents, helping students navigate this question of what did they believe about Jesus and who he was. Because, Jason, as we're going to hear from Michelle today, this is a absolute foundational question to our faith. Our faith is 100% based on our thoughts on Jesus. What we believe about him, whether he existed, whether he was just a regular guy, whether he was a prophet, whatever we may think about or hear about him, and it will determine our faith in him because we will start to develop the truth about who Jesus is uh, based on what we believe. And and so it's it's crucial. And again, Michelle lays it out for us to logically think through not just who Jesus is, but what he is, uh, why he came here to the earth and how we can know that he is the son of God. And there, there's just reasons to go, I now understand and I can place my faith wholeheartedly into the life of Jesus. I'm so excited for you listening to this right now. And, and as you're thinking about as a listener, your audience of students, you might be listening to this and you're a parent just trying to be a better parent. Or you might be a youth worker. You might be a youth pastor. You might be a teacher, someone that influences young people. Here's the thing. Here's the reality that no matter what audience, who is in your audience, whether they be uh, students that grew up knowing a lot of the Bible stories, going to church, knowing that on that on that extreme side or on the other extreme side, or maybe they know absolutely nothing, or they could be anywhere in between. And what's I'm excited about for you and for us as we listen to this in the next few moments is that Michelle is going to speak to every single one of those students in that spectrum and help them understand why it's important to understand who Jesus was. So whether they knew about Jesus and go, I believe in that, but they don't know why, or a student that doesn't even know this is for everyone in this audience that you have for students. And this question is really important because as she will point out, and we want to highlight before you hear what Michelle has to say, is that Jesus as a person, as a character, as a figure in history, is a defining person. And what you think about who he was separates you from everything else that's said and what people believe about who he was. You may be coming across this episode separate from our previous two episodes, 
And I would highly recommend you at least checking out our last episode where we asked the question, where does the truth come from? Because this episode builds off of that. Because why I'm saying that is we, we look at the Bible and why we, should, why we can believe it's true, why it's, it's God's word and why we can place our faith in it to know the truth from that book. But this is also looking at scriptures from the Bible and, and laying out evidence of, of who Jesus is and all that stuff. And so you may be coming to this episode, you know, separate from that and go, my thought on Jesus is, is completely opposite from the Bible. Well, go back to our last episode and look at and listen and, and go, all right, where do we get our truth from? Cause it's foundational to, to look at the Bible before we kind of start moving into the life of Jesus and go, how can we believe that this is true? That what we read in the Bible is true about Jesus. We lay that out in the last episode. So this mini series that we're doing, it's six parts. And like Jason was saying, there is a foundation that's already been laid in the first two episodes. And it, it would be really helpful to have context to do that. And as always, we want to encourage you. We, we think that especially during this time right now that we're going through, that we want to encourage you to be sharing these episodes with friends and colleagues and coworkers and people that are influencing the hearts and minds of students because Michelle does such an amazing job of, of communicating with students some of these very, very important and foundational questions of our life and of our faith. So this talk was given by Michelle Rewa in the summer of 2021 at NTS camp before a live audience of students. And so today we're going to listen to Michelle answer this question, what do I believe about Jesus? Question number three, what do I believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? The question of defining Jesus is at the heart of every faith debate. If you want to know what somebody else thinks really about faith issues, ask them what they believe about Jesus. Was he just a nice man? Was he just a wise teacher? Was he just a prophet? Was he just a politician? What is the truth about Jesus? Now, I know lots of you are church kids. You know all the stories. But I still have church kids who will ask me, why does Jesus' death matter so much? Everybody dies. I still have church kids who will say, I know what I believe, but I don't really know why. And I think that's because we know all the stories, but we don't always know the big story and how it all fits together. And I know some of you aren't church kids at all, and you're just kind of trying to figure this all out. And so this is for you, too, because if you're going to make a decision about Jesus, you should know what you're getting into. Okay, so we're going to go through the big story this morning about Jesus. Now, we said yesterday the Bible is a reliable historical document, so we can use it now to learn from about this person named Jesus. If you like to, like, take notes in your Bible, now would be a good time to get it out. I don't know how you feel about that, but I write in my Bible because it helps me remember things. So if that's you, that's great. We're going to be going through some of the Bible this morning. I have a New Living Translation. might be slightly different than what's in your hand. It's no big deal, right? It's pretty close. And all of the passages that we're going to look at will be on the screen, okay? So let me remind you, in the beginning, God created everything, and he created it all good. It was perfect. And in the book of Genesis chapter 2, 
we see that God created this man. At the end of his creation, he created a man. And he and the man have this interaction. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. There's two things going on here. I mean, there's a ton going on here, but there's two things I want you to know about. The first one is that God gives the man a choice, okay? One choice. It's about this fruit that he really shouldn't eat, but it's also about obedience, okay? So God gives the man a choice because love and freedom kind of go hand in hand. And the second thing I want you to notice is that there's a consequence for his choice, just like there's consequences for our choices. If the man chooses to disobey God, we call that sin, sin equals death. You got that? Sin equals death. What does sin equal? Death. Remember, it's going to come back. Okay, so there's the warning. Now I know, you know what happens. But in Genesis chapter 3, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. So you know the story. The man and the woman eat the fruit. The woman eats it first. She passes some off to her husband, who apparently is standing right there watching this whole thing, like, way to be a leader, Adam. And they both eat the fruit, and sin enters the world. And because the Bible tells a consistent message, in the book of Romans, chapter 5, it refers back to this. It refers back to this time in the garden. In Romans, chapter 5, it says... When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, because sin equals death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now sometimes people have a problem with this. See, the Bible teaches this big idea that when Adam sinned and death entered the world, it spread to everyone. It spread to you before you were even born. Well, that's not fair. Why should I be affected by something this person did all these years ago, thousands of years ago? I am sorry to tell you this, but sometimes life is not fair. So here's how I try to understand this. This helps me, okay? When I was pregnant with my kids, you know, like pregnant with my kids, if I had been a smoker, I wasn't, but if I had been a smoker, I would have passed that pollution on to my children, right? Like they never smoked. But if I smoked, physically, they would get that pollution from me, right? So sin is not a physical pollution, but it's kind of a spiritual pollution. Like, you inherit it from your parents from the very moment you begin to exist. And they inherited it from their parents and their parents and their parents, okay? So we all have this sin problem. 
right from the beginning. And then, of course, we all add to it as we live our lives. So the man and the woman have to leave the garden, and time passes. And God chooses for himself a family he's going to bless, the family of Abraham, and time passes. And this family of Abraham, they grow and they grow and they grow into this great nation, and they're living in Egypt, and they're in slavery. And God decides at the right time he's going to rescue them out of slavery. So he goes to Moses, this man named Moses you've heard of, and he and Moses have this conversation. He wants Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And in Exodus chapter 3, we see part of their conversation. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 13. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God gives himself a name. I am. Don't try to put God in a box by giving him a name that describes him. God is everything you need him to be. God is every description you can think of. I am. This comes up again. This is God's name, his name for himself. I am. So Moses goes to Egypt, and through a series of unfortunate events, he leads the people out of Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness. They're in the wilderness. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what they should do. There's, there's many of them. So Moses goes up a mountain to meet with God, and he comes back down the mountain with stone tablets in his arms, commandments. How many? Ten. God's top Ten Commandments. Because God actually gives the people over 600 rules for them to follow. Ten plus about 600 more. 600 rules. The Bible refers to it as the law, usually in capital letters. In your lowest voice, your lowest lion voice, say, the law. Well done. The law. This is the law. The law of 600 plus rules for the people to follow. God wants his people to be different from all of the other people in the surrounding nations, and God still wants his people to be different. So God gives them the law, and part of the law is how to deal with this sin equals death problem. Because with 600 laws to follow, you're going to sin a lot. So he gives them some of the law to help them deal with that problem. See, when you sin, and sin equals death, then you deserve to die. But everybody would be dead pretty soon. So God gives them specific rules. You don't have to die when you sin. You can bring something else to die in your place, a sacrifice. But there's specific rules about your sacrifice. In the book of Leviticus, It goes through some of those specific rules. I'm going to read a few of them to you, and I want you to see if you can pick up the consistent phrase in every single one, okay? In Leviticus 1, 3, it says, If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be male with no defects. 
In verse 10 it says, if the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the flock, it may be either a sheep or a goat, but it must be a male with no defects. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, if you present an animal from the herd as a peace offering to the Lord, it may be a male or a female, but it must have no defects. In verse 6, it says, if you present an animal from the flock as a peace offering to the Lord, it may be a male or a female, but it must have no defects. In chapter 4, verse 3, it says, if the high priest sins, bringing guilt upon the entire community, he must give a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He must present to the Lord a young bull with no defects. Over and over and over, every time a sacrifice is mentioned, the sacrifice you bring must have no defects. It must be perfect. You can't bring your little runty lamb to the altar that's going to die anyway you have to bring the lamb with no defects. And so, you come to the altar with your little lamb. You give your lamb to the priest. The priest slits its throat, sprinkles the blood of the lamb all over the altar, and now, you and God are okay again. Your sin has been paid for by the sacrifice. But then, you know, you're driving home from the temple, you get a little road ragey with your donkey, and all of a sudden you've sinned again. And now you need to have a sacrifice. And this is the system for hundreds of years, and it's important. There's a point in Leviticus chapter 17. It's important. This is very key. In Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says, God is speaking, and he says, For the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. So there's this old church phrase. I don't know if any of you have ever heard it before, but you're going to hear it today. If you went to Christian college someday, you might learn it in a class, but you're all going to learn it way ahead of time. Your parents may not even know this, okay? You can go impress them when you go home later. Be like, let me tell you something I learned at camp. So here's the phrase. Penal substitutionary atonement. Who's heard this before? One, two, three, four, five. Excellent. Most of you, I mean, it's not good. Most of you have, and a bunch of you, but that's great. Okay, you're the biggest group so far this summer that has heard this phrase. Penal substitution atonement. This means punishment. This word, you know this word, like a substitute teacher, right? A substitute, something that takes the place of another. And this word, atonement, somebody showed me once. Brilliant. It's not mine. This word breaks down to say, at one. So this phrase, this old church phrase, it means someone else was punished in your place so that you and God could be at one again. Sin separates us from God, but someone else took the punishment for you, was your substitute, so that you and God could be reconciled, could be together again. 
And the system for the people of Israel was that the lamb or the bull or the sheep would represent that sacrifice, would be that substitute. You got it? Okay. This is a system for hundreds of years, hundreds of years go by with God's people doing this over and over and over, making the sacrifices. And then, then there's this girl, this nobody of a girl in this nowhere of a town, and she's pregnant, and the rumor is she's not married yet. That's a big deal. And she says an angel came and talked to her about this pregnancy, about this baby. And in Luke chapter 1, we see a conversation between the angel and the woman Mary. And here's how that conversation goes. Start in verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel tells her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Now, we don't know, right, if we believe her story. Sounds kind of crazy. But if it's true, then her son... He's, he's human. He has the capacity to sin in his life. But her son is also God. He's not born with that sin problem the way we are. You could say he's born with no defect. And so Jesus grows up. He kind of drops off the radar for a while, and then he shows up again as an adult. He's doing this really cool stuff. Everybody likes him. He's feeding lots of people with just a little bit of food. There's people who have been blind their whole life, and now they can see again. There's people who haven't been able to walk, and now they can walk again. There's people who have been sick, and now they're healed. It's amazing. There are people who have had demons possess them, and he frees them from the demons. It's kind of creepy, but it's really cool. There's some things that make us a little bit uncomfortable about him, like kind of aligns with all these old prophecies we've been learning, and we're not so sure what we think about that. And the more we hear about him, maybe we don't like him quite so much anymore because there's some things that he's doing that make us uncomfortable. Um, You know, when he gets up to teach the people, he's supposed to talk about all the wise rabbis who came before them before him. He's supposed to say, well, this person taught this, and I'm going to teach it again. But what he does is he says, you've heard it taught this way, but I'm going to tell you a different way. I mean, who does he think he is to get up and say we've been wrong about some things? He's just some nobody, some carpenter from Nazareth. And there's, there was a time when he healed someone, and he told this guy that he healed his sins were forgiven. Only God can forgive sin. Who does he think he is to say that he can forgive this person's sin? 
And then we heard his followers will kneel down and worship him, and he allows them to do it. He is Jewish. He grew up going to the Jewish school. He knows that only God is worthy of worship. He should tell them to stand up, stand up. You shouldn't worship me. You should only worship God, but he allows them to do it. Who does he think he is? And we have heard these rumors about the things that he says. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He was with this whole group of people. They were having this conversation, kind of challenging him, and he suggested to them that before Abraham was born, I am. And the people picked up stones to stone him for using God's name for himself. But he got away. See, there are people who will tell you, there are people who will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. But if you understand the culture, if you understand the things that he said and the things that he did, if you understand the big story, Jesus was claiming to be God all the time. The people in his time knew it. They arrested him. They dragged him before the Jewish court. They dragged him before the Roman court. And this was his big opportunity to say, this is all a misunderstanding. I am just a nice guy. I am just a wise teacher. I am just a prophet. I am just a politician hoping for social change. I will pack my bags tonight. I will get out of town. You will never hear from me again. The Romans had been crucifying people long before Jesus. He knew that that was a possibility. And he doesn't say anything. He remains silent. He takes their verbal abuse, and then he takes the abuse that happens next. This is what I can't understand if Jesus was just one of those other things, why he doesn't try to bargain for his freedom. I'm a real logical thinker. You might have picked up on that by now with all my numbers and lists. So I'm going to make this real logical for you. C.S. Lewis, he was this great thinker, author, atheist, who became a Christian, and he proposed this logical argument about Jesus, okay? He said, Jesus claimed to be God. So, either he was or he wasn't. So far, so good, right? If Jesus wasn't God, we only have basically two options. Either he knew he wasn't God, and he was just kind of a con man, getting out of it what he could, which would make him a liar. Or he actually thought he was God, but he wasn't, which would make him crazy or a lunatic. Or he was actually who he said he was. Now, some people, they don't want to be all harsh on Jesus, you know, and they're like, well, maybe Jesus was just genuinely mistaken about his identity. Okay, listen, if I came up to you and I was, like, genuinely mistaken about being God, we're kind of right back in the crazy category. You'd be calling somebody about me. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. You get to decide 
what you believe about Jesus. And listen, I don't say this to you to smack you in the face with like this logical argument, and I don't say it so that you can go smack somebody else in the face with logic. It won't go well. I say it so that you can have confidence so that someday when doubt comes, and it will, there are questions you can't answer, there are challenges you don't know how to respond to. Listen, I can't explain everything, but I can't explain away Jesus. When I learn about Jesus, these two answers, they don't make any sense. And so I come here, and I have a foundation here, and I can build from here. When the rest of the world is going crazy, I always have this. When the people get up and challenge me, I always have this. And this is the beauty of Christianity, that the God of the Bible, the one true God, he doesn't say, show me how great you are, and I will consider you for my team. He says, you are my magnificent creation, and you have this problem. Sin equals death. You will never fix it. So I, the perfect one, will leave the perfect place and live a perfect life so that I can be the perfect sacrifice. I will solve your problem for you. And then I will offer you, just like in the garden, a choice. Our first thought for this morning, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. It's up to you. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, whose vision is to see new generations transformed in Christ to further the kingdom of God. Learn more at neverthesame.org.